Amen. You may be seated. For those of you who are taking, uh, utilizing our children's ministry, we run that through first grade. You're most welcome to take your children there now, check them in. Uh, for those of you whose kids are staying in the service, just again, we, we love having um, children in the service with us. We love um, that they're worshiping alongside of us. So they are most welcome here. Uh, we have, for a while now, we've been reading through our uh, Confession of Faith, just paragraph by paragraph, the London Confession of Faith, and we've been in chapter 8, which um, the doctrine that that uh, chapter covers is Christ as mediator, and I wanted to read this morning just the last paragraph in chapter 8 of the Confession, paragraph 10. It says, the number in character of these offices, speaking of prophet, priest, and king, the offices that Christ has fulfilled. It says, the office of these, or the character of these offices is essential. Because we are ignorant, we need His prophetic office. Because we're alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need His priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. Because we're hostile, and utterly unable to return to God and so that we can be rescued and made secure from our spiritual enemies. We need His kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for His heavenly kingdom. So the significance of Christ being our prophet, priest, and king. And praise God that He is. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9 is where we have been these last couple of weeks. And this morning, we are going to look particularly at verses 14 to, uh, verses 14 to 29. Verses 14 to 29. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. But let me read this section of Scripture to us, John Mark penning these words that is inspired of the Holy Spirit of God, this historical account that's been preserved for us to to read and, and be changed by here this morning. The Word of the Lord says this, And when He, speaking of Christ, when He came to the disciples, He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed, and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? And that word discussing can be translated in in some translations, debating. What are you debating with them? Meaning with the disciples or the apostles. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who's had a, who has a mute spirit, and wherever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. And he answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, 
from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And he began as one dead, became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So he said to them, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. Let's go to the, word, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for allowing us to come again and to read your word. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word. Lord, not just with our minds, but with our hearts. Help us. Lord, we're dependent upon you. And we trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we see this uh, historic account. It's, it's not only recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark, but we see it as well in Matthew and, and in Luke. But Mark, he gives us the most detail, right? which again is not characteristic of what we see in the Gospel of Mark, except for a few places. His style is usually immediate, kind of action-focused, but his account of this event uh, gives us the most detail. Um, for instance, um, his, his accounting is the only one that gives us this detail about the, the scribes being present and this argument uh, that is taking place. And, and I think that that is related perhaps to Peter's firsthand account, right? As Peter came off of the, the holy mountain that, that he uh, was on with Jesus and with um, James and with John, you know, he had this firsthand account of this. He was observing this particular situation, and so it it doesn't it shouldn't surprise us that if if Peter was very influential in Mark's life and and if Peter was helping to inform Mark's gospel that there would be more uh, information here than in Matthew and in uh, Luke as well. Now, this account, you know, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, it has echoes of what Moses found when he came off of the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Right? He he found unbelief. Right, in the shape of a golden calf, right? You see that in Exodus chapter 20, or Exodus chapter 32. Um, Luke's account, he puts this happening the, uh, immediately following the transfiguration. Immediately, it's the, the day after, okay? The, the transfiguration was probably at night, and so it, this is probably the, the morning after, and so this is close on the hills of, the, uh, of what we contemplated together last Sunday. So, so we have Jesus, and, it, and it, we can safely assume he came down off of the mountain with Peter and James and John to join the other disciples, specifically the other nine apostles. And when Jesus comes down, he sees a multitude, 
and he sees the apostles disputing with the scribes. And, and kids, when you hear that word scribe, you, you should think just religious leaders, religious leaders that would document things, that would write things down. But they, they come down off of this mountain after the transfiguration, and they see this big commotion. Okay, so, so think crowd, think arguing. And, and when everybody sees Jesus, our text says that they were, quote, greatly amazed or astonished. And some, some of the multitude, they ran to even greet Jesus. Now, Jesus is still, at, at this point in his ministry, he's, he's still popular with the multitude. And this could be the reason why people are astonished or amazed and they, they run to him. But more likely, Jesus's appearance still had remnants, if you will, of this transfigured state. And, and just to, again, by way of reminder, kids, when you, you, know, you hear that word transfigured or transfiguration as it relates to Christ, the word means change, but not a change to Jesus. It was more like a, a revealing, okay? Jesus revealed more of his eternal nature, his deity to Peter, James, and John. But in our text this morning, right, we, we see maybe he there was still some remnants of that transfiguration, not, not in the way that, that, that Peter, James, and John had observed it, but there was probably a noticeable radiance about him as he's coming down off of the mountain and into the multitude. This is also reminiscent of Moses his, uh, coming down off of Mount Sinai with, again, with the, the Ten Commandments. Moses' face was what, if you remember? Right? It, it was radiant. It was shining, wasn't it? Um, because he had been talking to the Lord. It was noticeably radiant. You see that in Exodus 34, just a couple of chapters after the, the golden calf incident. So I, I think similarly, we have Jesus, right, who we know is a greater Moses coming off of the mountain where, remember, he met with Moses right, on the mountain. Um, but he's coming off of the mountain after the transfiguration, there's probably this noticeable change in his appearance that's still remaining, noticeable enough that the people were greatly amazed. And that, that, that phrase, greatly amazed, in the Greek, it actually means trembling or astonishment that verges on alarm, okay? Um, yet, what does Jesus find when he comes off of the mountain? He finds unbelief. He finds unbelief, right? As Jesus comes down... He asks these scribes what the commotion is all about. And before the scribes or the apostles or, you know, most people could give an answer, a man speaks up, a, a, a father speaks up and says this, second part of verse 17, 18, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit and Wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, he becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. Now, notice some repetition in our text, if you're looking at your Bible with me. All right, the man tells Jesus, I brought you, my son. Right? I spoke to your disciples. We know from earlier chapters in Mark that Jesus had given his apostles 
authority over unclean spirits. Yet here we read that they, they couldn't cast this particular demonic spirit out. And it reflected on Jesus, right? His person and work, right? For, for better or for worse, right? Jesus' followers represent him for better or for worse, right? So the Father says, your disciples could not cast it out, right? Verse 18. And in response to this, we see in verse 19, Jesus calls his disciples a faithless generation, a faithless generation, right? In verse 22, we see the man say to Jesus, if you can do anything, right? In verse 24, we see the father of the demon-possessed boy ask Jesus to help his unbelief, In verse 26, we see the multitude conclude that the demon-possessed boy is dead instead of being healed after Jesus commanded the unclean spirit to leave him. In verse 29, we see that prayer, and most ancient manuscripts include the word fasting, that's why I read that a moment ago, but see that prayer was missing from the ministry of the apostles. And then on top of all of this, we have the scribes just fanning the flames of unbelief in the midst of the multitude. So Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's showing us the power of unbelief. He's showing us the power of unbelief. So kids, if you're taking notes, first thing you can write down is this. Unbelief is a plague this side of eternity. And by plague, I mean it's, it's pervasive, it's contagious. And I want to, for a moment, just, I want us to observe three types of of unbelief in our text together. Three types of unbelief. First, consider, for a moment, the unbelief of the scribes, right? The the religious leaders, the religious writers of the day, right? They were committed to to their unbelief. And and they wanted as many people as possible to join them in their unbelief. All right, think of them as 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 preachers of unbelief, as prophets of unbelief. Right, they were the ones causing the disturbance that that Jesus observed when he came down off of the holy mountain. They were the ones arguing with the apostles and getting the multitude swept up in this controversy. Right? They, they were doing just as we have observed them doing throughout our study in Mark alongside of the, the Pharisees, right? They were highlighting the apostles' inability to do something, and particularly in this case, to cast out a demon. And they were highlighting that in order to discredit the person and ministry of Jesus, right? The target was always to discredit or shame Jesus publicly. And the way in which they went about that was through the, the stumbling, right, through the faithlessness of Jesus' disciples, again, particularly the apostles, right? Despite the consistent miracles that these scribes knew of, right, despite the consistent miracles that these scribes even observed, they, there were witnesses to it, Despite all that, they were hardened in their unbelief, and they looked for ways to validate their unbelief. Right? They looked for ways to validate their unbelief. And I think here of Romans chapter 1, 18 to 21, 
says this, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, get this, this is a key phrase, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because what can be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without, what? Excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? Unbelief is the sin which earns us an eternal hell, and unbelief is driven, not by lack of evidence, we've talked about this, but by our unrighteousness. It's driven by our unrighteousness. Right? The scribes could try to point the finger any which way that they wanted to, But every person ever created is held accountable. Is held accountable, right? Every single person ever created is without excuse, right? All men stand condemned. Why, according to Romans 1? Because they suppress what can be known about God. They suppress what is plain through their unrighteousness, right? The scribes, the religious leaders of the day, they saw, but they suppressed. They saw but they suppressed. They were settled in unbelief. They didn't give glory to God. They were futile in their thoughts, and their hearts were darkened. They were not thankful to their Creator. They were entitled, the antithesis of being thankful. And this is who we are by nature. Right Later, Romans chapter 3, there is none good, no, not what? One. Nobody. You're not an exception, neither am I, right? Our unrighteousness suppresses what's true about God. It solidifies our unbelief. So we see a practical example of Romans 1 with the scribes. They were settled against Christ. And sadly, there are many people that we know that are in this same condition, right? There may be people in, the very, in this very room this morning that are like this. People that are disturbingly settled. People that are comfortable in unbelief. And like the scribes, they may have excuses. Some that seem legitimate for their not coming to Christ in repentance and faith. They may point to hypocrisy, right? The faithlessness of Christians and say, that's why I don't believe. They may point to the suffering that we see in the world. That's why I don't believe. But the Bible says those aren't legitimate excuses. Every single person's without excuse. Nobody, absolutely no one will stand before God with an excuse. So we see a, a, a sober warning in the unbelief of the scribes this morning. We also see the unbelief of the multitude. The unbelief of the multitude. They're truly like a sheep without a shepherd. Jesus says that very thing when he looked at them uh, with compassion. If you remember back to his feeding of the multitude, right? We see him say those very words, Mark chapter 6, verse 34. But the crowd in our text is, is seemingly manipulated by every wind 
uh, the, just the blow of doctrine, every wind of doctrine. They're, 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 they're watching this debate happen between the scribes and, and the apostles, and it shakes them. It, 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 it rattles them. And, and you can see that evidenced in the way that the father of the demon-possessed kid speaks. Right? And let's think about him specifically for a moment, okay? He hoped that his son would be healed, right? And, and can you just imagine these circumstances, right? For those of us that are parents, right, if our children were suffering with a great affliction, right, there's not a single parent in the room this morning that wouldn't do whatever it takes to get them better, Right? If you could take the affliction yourself, you would take the affliction. If you could die and know that your death would make them better, you would do that too. And this father, we see, he, he just wants his son to be healed. He wants him healed. And, and he comes with high expectations based on what he had heard, the testimony that had been given about Jesus, right? Yet, the apostles are unable to heal the boy. Right? They're not able to. Think of how crushing that would have been. Crushing. And what did the scribes do? Do they comfort this man at all? No. Right? They, they, they seize an opportunity to manipulate the situation. Right? And how familiar are we with a tactic like that? Right? We see some tragedy in the news, and it takes all of what, about 30 seconds before some politician or some media outlet is using the tragedy to advance some sort of political agenda. Right? The scribes, like politicians, the scribes, like the media, they seize an opportunity here to manipulate people by capitalizing on compromised emotions. Right? Again, the scribes, the religious leaders, right? they, 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 they were these prophets, these spokespeople, for unbelief in Christ. Now, maybe you identify with the crushing disappointment of this father. Perhaps there are those sitting in the room this morning that have a lot of unmet expectations, lots of disappointments. Maybe your life isn't what you thought it was going to be. Your spouse isn't who you thought he or she was going to be. Your health isn't what you thought it would be, right? Maybe you don't have to put yourself in this father's shoes because like the father in the story, maybe you have sick kids. Right? Or, or maybe some of you have lost children tragically or maybe you have children that aren't walking with the Lord. Listen, your enemy, right? this adversary, this great unseen devil wants to use the circumstances of your life to discredit the goodness of God. All right, he's been doing that since the Garden of Eden. But he wants to use the circumstances of your life to discredit the person and work of Jesus. All right, he's like a scribe saying, this is all a sham. This is all a sham. All right, he's behind the scribe saying that very thing. And there he is, this real temptation toward unbelief. There's this real temptation toward despair, right? There's real temptation toward bitterness. There's this propensity of, of falling into the crashing ways, uh, waves of, of, of crippling depression and anxiety. And so we see the unbelief of the multitude, but specifically 
this struggle that this father who just wanted his son to be healed, the struggle that he has with unbelief. And maybe we identify with it. Maybe we identify with him. We also see Jesus' own disciples wrestling with unbelief. Matthew's account helps us to see this even more. Matthew chapter 17, verses 19 to 20. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Jesus' rebuke of the disciples also gives us insight into their unbelief, right? Oh, faithless generation, how long do I have to put up with you? Now, we may want to get tough on the apostles because of how much they've been around Jesus at this point in the ministry of Jesus, but how often do we struggle with resting in what we know to be true, right? How often do we struggle to remember the gospel, right? The very reason that Christ came is because we're utterly incapable of remaining faithful in our own strength, right? It's the Lord alone who's faithful, who's truly faithful, and it's in Him that we have to place our trust, not in ourselves, right? Not in our ability to be faithful, but in our triune God alone. So this morning, we, we see this, this plague, right? This uh, um, contagious and pervasive disease called unbelief. And if we're paying attention to ourselves as we consider this text, right, we see the various ways in which we're plagued this side of eternity with it as well. And the second thing, and by God's grace, good news, if you're taking notes, our faith must be in Jesus, not in our circumstances and not in ourselves. Okay, our faith must be in Jesus, not in our circumstances and not in ourselves. Right? This is where we turn a corner, right? Because we can see that that's what Jesus does in our text. Right? He, he graciously, He he compassionately heals the father's son. But the question we have to ask is, what did Jesus address through that healing? Was it just a healing or was, is there something even, even grander and more significant going on? Right. We see through this healing, through the way in which Christ guides this, even, this conversation, both with the man and with the disciples, right, we see him address unbelief head on, right? The unbelief pervasive in the scribes and the multitude and the Father and His own disciples. And again, what, what, was, un, what was the unbelief, right? In other words, unbelief in whom, right? And we, we know the answer to that question. We know that it was related, all of this was related to the scribes casting doubt on Jesus. Again, His person and His work, right? So when we read, O faithless generation, we should think faithless in Christ, Faithless in Christ. Or think of Jesus' response to the man when the man says to Jesus in verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus says in reply, if you can believe, right? Jesus turns it around. But he turns it around for the good, not just for the, the healing he was about to do with this man's son, but for the good of this man's soul, 
he turns it around. What we see Jesus doing is being ultimately compassionate, eternally compassionate by turning this around. But belief in what? Believe in what? Believe in a healing? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Just believe in a healing or believe for a miracle. Right? Is Jesus here, is he preaching the power of positive thinking? Right? If so, we should start opening up hospitals and stuff and, and just, you know, tell people you don't, you don't need any medications or anything like that. Just, believe, just think more positively about your body and you'll be healed. Right? But that's not what Jesus is doing, is it? Right? The focus of belief is Jesus. Right? He's making himself the object, not demands on wishful thinking. Right? Now, what does Jesus mean when he says all things are possible to him who believes? What does he mean there? Does it mean that our circumstances in this life are going to be what we want them to be if we just have enough faith? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Right? We know that that's not the case experientially, right? Many of you in this church have suffered and are suffering greatly. And your suffering and your continual suffering isn't because you lack faith. It's not because you lack faith. And I'm sorry if you've been told that. Now, the message of the gospel isn't a promise of health. It's not a promise of wealth. It's not a promise of prosperity. It's great if we're blessed with those things. Praise God for those of you who have those things. Those are good things to honor God with, right? But that's not what we're promised. That's not the promise that we, found in the, that we find in the gospel of God. And if you think that, or if you're reading things like that, or if you're listening to teachers that teach you that, or you're listening to friends that say those things to you, then you need to tune out of that. Right? The message is, uh, that message is as deceptive, deceptive as the message of the scribes. And it doesn't lead you closer to Jesus. It actually leads you further from Jesus. Right? Think about what the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. Right? He reminds us that God didn't spare His only Son from suffering. God didn't spare His only Son from suffering. He's called the suffering servant by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. So what it is meant by Jesus when He says, if you believe, all things are possible to Him who believes. All things are possible to Him who believes is Jesus asking, what is your view of me? What is your view of me? All right. What's impossible with man is possible for Christ because he's creator God. He has authority over unclean spirits. We've seen that time and time again in our study through Mark so far, right? This isn't a promise from Jesus that all your wildest dreams are going to come true. This is Jesus saying, who am I? Who am I? Am I a man only or am I the eternal God? Do you believe that I have authority over all things in heaven and earth? Do you believe that I have authority over your very own soul? And Jesus is saying, the one who believes in me knows I can do all things. I can do all things. But listen closely. That's a far cry from seeing our Savior as answerable to us. It's a far cry from that. That's different from seeing God as owing something to us. Because he doesn't owe us anything. 
Instead, Jesus tells us how we approach God, how we petition God. He teaches us how to pray, right? Just the first few verses in Matthew chapter 6 as it relates to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, some of you had this memorized, right? Hallowed, right? Which, kids, that, that means holy or set apart. Right? Holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your what? Will be done. On earth, what? As it is in heaven. Right? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Not my kingdom come. Not my will be done. It's not how we pray to Almighty God. I mentioned this last week. But we were made, you and I were made to glorify God and to enjoy God. And, and we have to make sure that we don't forget that. We have to strive by God's grace to remember that. It's one of the importance of us gathering regularly together. And the Christian whose faith is in the Lord is the Christian who lives his life open-handedly. Right? The Christian whose faith is in the Lord, the Christian who's seeking to glorify God and to enjoy God is the Christian who holds his or her circumstances no matter what those circumstances are, and says, Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Right? A Christian whose faith is in the Lord, though the worst of things happen, can say along with Job, Job chapter 13, verse 15, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Petition the Lord in prayer. Lament to the Lord, which is holy complaining, if you will, worshipful complaining, right? Lament to the Lord, right? long for the day that suffering and evil is put away with, pray to be de- delivered now, pray for your loved ones to be delivered now. Right? The Bible is, is, is rich with that type of vocabulary and, and can equip us to do those very things, right? The Psalms uh, especially But as Christians, we do those things in faith, right? With our faith squarely put on Jesus Christ. That's how we approach these things. No matter what happens, though He slay me, though I lose everything that's dear to me, yet my faith is in Christ Jesus. That is so much easier to say, isn't it? Really, really hard to walk the path of an Old Testament saint like Job. Impossible to walk that path apart from our triune God giving us grace and mercy. Yet Jesus says, believe. Believe. Put your faith in me. Trust in me. I'm your anchor in the midst of the worst of things. Our our Jesus, who knows experientially the worst of things. He left glory and condescended here to suffer, and His suffering is faithful suffering. His honoring God in the midst of of His suffering is what led to our redemption, right? It's our very hope. He says, trust me. Trust me in the worst of things. 
I mean, we can take the words of this father. I love the vocabulary that we gain from this dad here that the Holy Spirit's preserved for us because his vocabulary can be our vocabulary. Lord, I believe. Lord, I trust. Help my unbelief. Help my lack of trust. And Jesus heals this man's son. We see that this boy, he suffered with epileptic symptoms. In fact, Matthew says uses that word explicitly in chapter or verse 15 of chapter 9. Yet we see from our text, right, he, he it wasn't just epilepsy, but it was a demon possession that was causing epileptic symptoms. Which we don't conclude that epilepsy equals demon possession from, from this account, right? That's not the point of the text. But what we see is that this devil wanted to destroy this boy, right? He wanted to destroy the image of God in this boy. He wanted to destroy through the scribes the faith as well of weak believers. And Jesus didn't always heal. He did not always heal. He didn't heal everyone, did he, in his first advent. And not everyone gets healing now, this side of eternity. But he did heal this boy. And as the boy got closer to Jesus, this devil squirmed and convulsed him and and, and threw him to the ground, right? This reminder that darkness hates light, right? Darkness has always hated light, always will hate light. That's why the nations rage. That's why this nation rages, right? But Jesus, he heals this boy, and then he touches him. After the healing, he brings him up onto his feet, right? This little resurrection signified by two words. He arose. He arose. And so will all those who trust in Christ when He returns. After this compassionate healing by Jesus, we see Him address the disciples privately. They ask Him, why could we not cast it out? And He said, this kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. These disciples, they couldn't cast this demon out, although earlier in Mark we saw they were authorized to do that very thing. So it wasn't like they were doing something they were unauthorized to do. Furthermore, we know that what they were doing, what they were trying to do, was a good thing, trying to continue on this ministry in Jesus' absence, the very thing Jesus commissioned them with after His resurrection and before His ascension. But they were trying to do it in their own strength. When Jesus calls them faithless earlier in our text, it isn't because they're without faith entirely. Rather, they had a misplaced faith. I actually think they had too much faith in themselves. They were wrestling with pride, and I think that's evident by two things. First, they lacked prayer and fasting. These are two tangible ways in which we express our utter dependence upon the Lord, who's the giver of all things. A prayerless people is a prideful people. But secondly, I think we have further evidence that they were consumed with pride because as we'll see later, soon, just a few verses um, in chapter 9, verses 33 to 41, they're, they're arguing on the road to Capernaum about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? They were concerned about the exaltation of self, not the exaltation of, of Jesus. So this morning, we see the power, we see the plague of unbelief this side of eternity, and we have to confess that that all of us struggle with it. We all struggle with it. But we also see the power of God 
And we see that Christ alone must be the object of our faith. We can't place our faith in our circumstances. We can't place our faith in other people. We can't place our faith in ourselves. We have to place our faith in Christ alone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time together in your word, and we ask that you would use it to strengthen us, Lord. God, I pray for those who are wrestling with unbelief, God, that you would help. The the, the various types of unbelief, Lord, from the unbeliever, Lord, that you would help them to believe, God, for the Christian that's struggling with, with suffering, God, I pray that you would help to persevere them and, and to be reminded that you're good. And God, I pray for the Christian who's wrestling with pride. Pray for a renewed sense of humility, God. And remind us all collectively this morning that our faith is in Christ alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.